Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So today's scripture is from a story that you might be familiar with. There's a lot of allusions to it in literature and in our cinematic media, and that's the story of David and Bathsheba. And what ends up happening is that David has stayed home, and the text says that it was the time when kings went off to war, and then immediately David is home. So if it's a time when kings go off to war, what is David doing home? But he's home, and while he's home, he gets into trouble because I don't know if you were raised like this, but I was raised to believe that if, you're up, if you don't have something to do with yourself, you find up to no good, right? You find things to do up to no good. And that's what David did. David looked out, and he saw Bathsheba, and he liked her, and he took her for himself. And afterwards, Bathsheba sent word to David that said, I am pregnant. And David said, I need to fix this. So David sent to have her husband, Uriah the Hittite, who was actually out fighting on David's behalf, had him sent home. And when Uriah came to the palace, for that was where he was called, David said, I think you should go home and see your wife. Have a good time. Enjoy. And Uriah said, no, I can't go home. All of my fellow soldiers are still sleeping out in the field, and they're struggling and fighting for their lives, and it would be wrong of me to go home and enjoy the comfort of my bed and my wife. I'm not going to do that. And so right after this, he decides that maybe if he got Uriah drunk, he would go home and see his wife. But no, it did not work. And so David determined that there was another way to fix his problem. If Uriah wouldn't go visit his wife, he would get rid of Uriah. And so he wrote his commander and he said to him, I want you to put Uriah as close to the front of the most dangerous fighting. And once he's there... I want you to withdraw the troops from around him and allow the enemy to kill him. And the commander did as David asked and sent word to say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And at that time, David then took Bathsheba and married her, legitimizing her child, sort of. It's upon this that Nathan shows up. And God sent Nathan to David to hold David accountable for what he had done. David thought that he had sufficiently covered up his sin, which not only included adultery, but now murder. And when Nathan shows up, he chooses a very interesting way of engaging with King David. This is not an equal power footing here. Even though Nathan is a prophet of God, David is the king over the United Kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. He is not only very powerful, but he is beloved. He is effective as a military leader and as a king. And when Nathan comes before him, if he does not choose his words carefully, David could have him killed. And so his tact is very interesting. He decides to give David a piece of case law. I want to tell you a story. And so he tells David this story, and this is one of the most impactful times in Scripture that we see a story about telling a story that is not literally true. The story that Nathan tells is not literally true, but we can see from the text that it has spiritual truth because it will convict David. And the story goes like this. There are two men. One is rich, 
and one is poor. The rich one has everything he could ever want. He is just overwhelmed with all of his blessing. And the poor man has but one lamb. And this isn't just a piece of livestock or a pet. This is a beloved member of his household. And he has loved and cared and nurtured for this lamb. And the lamb means very much to him. It is his one and only. And the rich man determines that why should he go without taking part of his flock to feed a visitor and practice hospitality when he could take the poor man's? And so he does. And he slaughters it, and the poor man is now completely bereft of his beloved lamb. And when Nathan tells this to David, David's reaction is quite intriguing. This man deserves to die for what he has done, and before he dies, he's going to pay back the poor man fourfold. Four times what that lamb was worth, he's going to pay it back. Well, as you and I both know, it's windy. There's no way to calculate how much that lamb was worth. That lamb was priceless. But it's interesting that David thinks that you can quantify this, that you can figure out what it was worth and we will, you know, we'll pay it back. And Nathan is outraged, and at this point, that's when he says, you are the man. The man in the story, the rich guy that had plenty, that had all the wives and the concubines and everything, that's you. And you weren't satisfied, so then you decided to take Bathsheba. And it wasn't bad enough that you took her, that then when you got in trouble because of having a relationship with her, you decided that rather than coming clean and owning it, that you would kill her husband? How is that any better? And it's at this moment that David does something for which the scriptures repeatedly commend him. Over and over again, David is listed as not only the greatest king in all of Israel, but that David has a heart like God. Well, David has plenty of mess-ups, and this is only one of the big ones. There are lots of them. But what you see immediately is that David's heart turns, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He owns it right then and there. He doesn't backpedal and say, well, you know what? She really shouldn't have been up bathing on that roof anyway. That was just not appropriate. Which, by the way, it was appropriate. That's where they took their baths. But he didn't try to do that. He didn't try to claim that she had lured him or anything like that. And he didn't try to go, well, you know what? She didn't get pregnant until after. He didn't try to, don't try to lie to a man of God. That's not a good idea. But he didn't try to do any of that. Instead, he just owned it. I messed up. I messed up and I have sinned against the Lord. And at that moment, the second that he turns, Nathan responds in a very Christian way. Nathan's response before Christianity was to say, now the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. He immediately recognizes and articulates forgiveness. And there's a very human side to us when we recognize this. Most of us would be like, and I just want to put it out there one more time what you did wrong, just so that we all know that you were wrong and what you did. But instead, these two model for us something that is very important. And that's how accountability could look in the life of the church. Because we live in the midst of community. It's not just us here, individuals gathered here, and we occupy space for a time, and then we all go about our separate lives. We are engaged in mission and ministry together, not only corporate worship, but all throughout the week we have small groups, smaller communities within our larger family of faith. We have people here who are in leadership that are working together in committees and boards to help continue the work of the body of Christ. And by the way, we have friends and family in the church so that 
we need to be in right relationship with one another. And yet, it's too easy to either abuse accountability or to not have any at all. Accountability, when it is done right, is a means of grace because it makes us better. It makes us recognize that not only are we important and vital, but that we are important and vital to each other. That God is able to take individual persons and knit them together. And because of those relationships, we are able to be better together than we would be individually. And that our relationships push us to be better disciples. And so how do we get into conversations about accountability without the harsh reality of what most people think accountability is? Accountability is not the hard truth and just thrown out there with complete disregard for how it is received and the pain and suffering it may cause. That is not accountability. That is self-righteousness, where you feel entitled to just say, here's what's wrong with you. But if we pay attention to Nathan, we find that Nathan offers us a little bit of a glimpse on how we might deal with one another. Sometimes it's how we talk to people that is actually more important than what we say. How we choose to speak to another person and how we engage a conversation. One of the things that always comes up about accountability is that sometimes there's ebb and flow and, and the attendance in worship life and presence of people. I have this too. There are plenty of accountability groups and other groups within the larger global church that I'm a member of, and sometimes I can be present with them and sometimes I can't. And if I miss more than one meeting, I do have a colleague who says to me, hey, how are you? I've really missed you. You know, when you're not at this meeting, I can totally tell. Like, it's a completely different atmosphere, and I really miss what you bring, and I miss seeing you. And that's a much nicer way to say, Sarah, stop being lazy and slacking off and sh not, don't show up at the meeting. What's wrong with you? Because what ends up happening is that this person has conveyed to me that my presence is important, that I'm valued, that there's something that I bring that is uniquely special about me, and that makes you feel good. And then you go, hmm, I probably should go more often. And not I should go more often so people can be blessed by me but that I should go more often because it's important in the relationship that I have with these people, that we have a relationship together. So instead of us, you know, noticing somebody's gone and going, you found something more important than Jesus, instead of having those conversations, which are not very fruitful, instead we could have conversations like, you know, I, I love getting to see you when you show up at church and when we pass the peace. It's great when I, when I get to embrace you and see you there and it really means something when I get to have that kind of encounter with you, and I've really missed it. And is everything okay? Is there anything that I can do for you? Or is there some way in which I can be at service for you to help you out? Because at that point, we've shifted from making somebody feel guilty to letting them know that, one, we are interested in them and that we want our relationships to be right and fruitful, but that we also recognize that people have struggles, and that rather critiquing how they live out their struggles, we, Im we invite them to allow us to share the burdens, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in his letter to the Philippians, that we are here to share one another's burdens. Accountability is not thrusting all of the guilt onto the other person. It's about recognizing that we need to be together and united. And the hard part about this is, that sometimes accountability is completely lacking because we're afraid that somebody will get hurt, that they will 
feel attacked. If you're afraid that what you're going to say is going to make somebody feel attacked, then you need to work on what you're going to say and let people know, you know, this isn't about, you know, I, I'm not here to judge you. I've just, I miss you. Or, you know, I think that it would be really great if you had this role with us because we are so richly blessed by you. Those are the kinds of conversations churches should be engaging in, not we're kicking you off the rolls or, you know, you've been a really poor disciple of Jesus Christ and your example is horrific and what do your kids think about you? These are not the kinds of conversations that Christians should be having. Instead, we're called to look for ways in which we can use our words to emphasize for other people just how important they are. And all of this is because we recognize that we are so important to God that God was willing to offer God's self for us to be reconciled, to be forgiven, to be liberated from our sin and our mistakes. And God chooses words very carefully. The struggle with accountability is that it requires the one who's offering that, that challenge and that edification of accountability to use words very carefully. Because words are powerful. And the wrong words can hurt. And sometimes we just need to acknowledge that. That I don't have the right words. But here's what I'm trying to tell you. I want you to know that you're important to me. I want you to know that whatever the brokenness is between us or whatever the distance that has grown between us, I'm not okay with that because you mean more to me than being right. You mean more to me than proving that, this, that my view was the correct view, but that instead I want to be back to where we should be. In fact, I don't want to just go back to where we were. I want us to be better than where we were. So how could we do that? What might that look like if we do these things together? That's the gift of the church. Because the church is always the place where we should be modeling for one another that it is never over. You are never too far gone. Because when the prophet Nathan brought this word to David, and David pronounced what should happen, this man should die. Nathan said, okay, if that's what should happen, then get ready. But instead, the moment David turned and repented and said that I have sinned, he acknowledged his sin. And that's the next thing that's really hard in accountability. We have to be really humble. Sometimes we have to be willing to recognize that it's not all the other person's fault. That even without intending to, sometimes we create obstacles and barriers. Sometimes we have set things in order that facilitated a brokenness or a fracture in a relationship. Sometimes without even trying, without ever wanting to, we have been part of the need for reconciliation because we have not been able to live out the kind of glorious relationship that Christ offers to us. And when that happens, it's incumbent upon us to recognize that. You know, I don't know if I could have done anything different that would have prevented this from happening. But if there's something that I could have done, I would love for you to share that with me so that this doesn't happen again because it's hard being broken. It's really painful for me not to be with you and for you. Those are the kinds of conversations that we're invited to have. And the best part about Nathan's response to David's repentance is that he immediately takes all of that sin and that guilt and locks it away in a tomb, never to be resurrected. He doesn't bring it back up. He doesn't visit David two chapters later and go, do you remember that thing with Bathsheba? I didn't forget. He didn't do that. Instead, what he does is lock away in the tomb the sin and the guilt 
and brings back out the relationship that David can be restored, that it's not too late. And God is constantly trying to show us that. If our relationship with God, whom we continually batter with our disobedience, our own self-will, and our sinfulness, is never too far gone, then how can we hold anyone else to a higher standard? How can we as individual Christians think that there are people that are too far gone, that there are relationships that are too destroyed? If we are willing to open up space and people are willing to engage and rekindle relationships, then it's incumbent upon us to try. To try. And Nathan shows us that. Because ultimately, the legacy of David is that every time David messes up, and he messes up a lot, every time he messes up and he gets called on it through the process of accountability, David repents. And David chooses to engage not only in the other means of grace that are available to him in the Old Testament, but continually turns to God and says, this is not who I want to be. Accountability is a recognition by every Christian that we are not yet perfect, that we want to be better. Because the gift of God is that God sees our potential, loves us right as we are and where we are, implicitly, explicitly. And yet, God knows that we can be more. We can be more loving. We can be more graceful. We can be more grace-filled. We can be more forgiving. We can be more tolerant. Some of us can be more vocal. Some of us can be more silent. There are all kinds of things that we can do to be better. And it's not so that each individual Christian is some superhero of the faith, but that ultimately, as each one of us gets better, we get better at letting other people be their best. And that is what God has called forth from the community. That righteous living together in holy community would be about an accountability that makes people feel valued, of sacred worth, preserves their dignity, and encourages us to focus more on relationship than being right. And that's hard. It's a lot more satisfying to know that you are right. It's a lot more difficult and hard work to set that aside and focus more on a relationship. And that's where the struggle comes for us, to focus on what it is that God would have us do. Because if it was all about being right, we're all in a lot of trouble. But because it's more about our relationship with God and other people, that's where we can truly flourish. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. God expects us to try over and over again to perfectly be in right relationship. And it's in the trying, the attempt, the desire, and the follow-through. Because as you know, Jesus recognizes that some things will not be restored on this side of the kingdom. Jesus says to his disciples when he sends them out in ministry, when you go somewhere and if you extend your peace and the peace doesn't come back to you, then you may need to kick the dust from your feet and move on. He recognizes that that day may come. But Jesus also recognizes time and time again that sometimes you have to keep trying. For three years, he will try with his apostles, teaching them, revealing who he is, showing them mighty acts and miraculous 
miracles of power and awe and blessing people, and yet they still don't seem to have it by the time he's crucified. And some of them still don't have it when he's resurrected. But God doesn't stop trying to be in the relationship. If God started Xing people every time they got an answer wrong, the Bible would be a lot shorter. Instead, God cords through word that every person is worth a dialogue, a relationship, and a journey. And we are called to nothing less. God was modeling that. God could have smited David. One zap from a lightning bolt and David could have been done. But that's not what God wanted. God wanted David to recognize that he had done wrong. And the child that Bathsheba had does not survive. That child is gone. But God recognizes that even out of brokenness, there can come blessing. And so what God ends up bringing forth from the relationship is that now when David and Bathsheba are married, they conceive a new child. And that child will become an epic king who blesses richly. Because that child's name is Solomon, one of the wisest rulers in all of the world, according to Scripture. And at one point, David will look and say, God, you've been so good to me. You have been so amazing. I have this glorious house. I think you should have a house. I want to build you a house. And God says, that's very nice, David, but your hands are a little messy. Instead, how about this? How about we share the blessing and I let your son build my house? He can build my house. And because of the birth, the redemptive birth of Solomon, and because of Solomon growing in wisdom and grace, and because David is willing to share the glory with Solomon, Solomon will build the first temple, a house of worship, the likes of which change the world. And if that's not a story of redemption, I'm not really sure what qualifies. But out of brokenness, God seeks to mend, to bring us back together. And we have been given such power in our words that we need to focus on how we talk to one another, the ways in which we want to engage. And ultimately, the message that needs to be conveyed is not that we have the answers, that we are right, that they are wrong, but that they are important to us. That is what righteous accountability looks like. Jesus preaches this over and over in his ministry. That it wasn't about telling the woman at the well, I know all about your sinful past. But that I know you. And I want you to have the water from the wellspring of life. And when he sees Zacchaeus, it's not, Zacchaeus, you're a horrible human being with your tax collecting. But that Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house because you mean something to me. And if we choose to model that in our accountability, we will transform how the church looks, feels, and functions. More and more churches will start to look like the kingdom to come. Because I doubt any of us really want to stand before the risen Christ on the day of judgment and have him simply point out all the times we were wrong. Wouldn't it be better if we could experience Jesus going, you know, all of this stuff that you did, all of the pain and the suffering and the sin, what if I just put that aside and I sat here and I told you how much you mean to me? That every time 
a human being erected and meditated upon a cross, all it did would make, was make me realize how much I love you and that it was all worth it because now you are here with me and we will never be separated again. If that's the kind of accountability we want, then we must model it now. And we must show the world that there is a better way of being together than what we have shown in the past. And ultimately, when we leave this place, when we go forth into our lives and we go back out into the world, what we choose to say will not speak as large a volume as how we choose to say it. And God is empowering us to be not only vessels, but to bridge gaps. And there is nothing greater than being a means of grace in the gospel. And that is what God is offering to each and every one of us today, to be part of that legacy. And that is why we come before God. That is why we worship. And that is why today we will all be invited to receive a blessing a same anointing like David received. And it didn't make him amazing. It didn't perfect him. It didn't take away his sin. But it reminded him that he was called for greatness. And every believer is too. May our words and our relationships become a priority for us so that ultimately for others, the grace of God will become their gift. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.